Bretto, can you believe it? The Wellness Summit is almost here. Oh, I'm P. I'm so excited. I don't know what to do with myself. Well, Bretto, it's been two long years since our last Wellness Summit. And if you're listening to this, folks, and don't have a ticket, then... What are you doing? The Wellness Couch family of podcasters gather for two days in Melbourne on Saturday, August 25 and 26, featuring... The Queen of Nutrition, Cindy O'Meara. The rock star of wellness, Dr. Damien Christoph. Connect with your spirit and soul with Barley Bomb survivor, Karen Smith. Self-care is on the menu with Kim Morrison. Master the art of ageing well with the one and only Marcus Pierce. Oh, shucks, Bretto. What about how to recover from rock bottom with Dr. Brett Hill? Master your stress with Dr. Maria Zushman. Get empowered with Imogen Bailey. Female health experts Dr. Andrea Huddleston and Ashley Bond. Master your sleep with Audra Starkey. The natural nutritionist Steph Lowe. Australian Idol winner, Wes Carr. Woohoo! And Quirky Cooking's Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab and a whole lot more. Oh, what a lineup, MP. Seriously, why would you not be coming to the Wellness Summit? Not to mention our world-class exhibition of Australia's most incredible, sustainable wellness products and services. MP, we've done the final layout. There are less than 100 spaces left. And there's only a few discounted tickets available at thewellnesssummit.com. Marcus, be there or be square. Zazen Alkaline Water presents the 2018 Wellness Summit, Saturday, August 25 and 26 at the Collingwood Town Hall. Getting quick, folks. The final release of discounted tickets available at thewellnesssummit.com. See you there, Bretto. Thewellnesscouch.com. Streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Healthy Shift Worker with your host, Audra Starkey. Hello and welcome to The Healthy Shift Worker podcast. My name is Audra Starkey and I'm here to help you to manage some of the toughest challenges we face whilst working 24-7. Today's podcast is going to be all about food uh, or more specifically real food because as we know as shift workers... We're definitely prone to eating a lot of the refined and processed foods given we're often struggling with fatigue uh, thanks to our ongoing sleep disruption. But eating real food, as you're about to hear from our guest, is extremely important for our health in so many ways. So to talk uh, more about eating real food, along with including more lower carbohydrates and more of the healthy fats into our diet, I've invited fellow nutritionist Steph Lowe to today's podcast. Steph is a sports nutritionist, triathlete and author of a book called The Real Food Athlete. She has a passion for spreading a positive message around real food and how this affects our performance uh, and works uh, primarily with a lot of elite athletes along with uh, goes into schools and corporations to deliver workshops um, and has even been um, involved in uh, creating a uh, new menus for Grilled, which is a healthy uh, burger chain. So to talk all about real food and low-carbohydrate, high-fat eating, I'd like to give a warm, I'm going to use that word warm because I know she's down in Melbourne, <laughs> and friendly healthy shift worker, welcome to Steph. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you, Steph. Um, yeah, it's really, really nice to, uh, to kind of have you on the, the podcast. I think we met, goodness, probably a couple of years ago, 
um, briefly um, at one of the wellness uh, summits uh, down in Melbourne, but we're about to catch up again shortly this weekend. Hey. So. I know. It's come <laughs> around again. Well, we had a year off last year, so yeah. we're um, yeah we're ready to go. It's here and um, we're going to be at a new location at the Collingwood Town Hall all weekend, so very exciting. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. So, yeah, what's the Collingwood um, Hall like? I haven't been there before. You know what? Neither have I. I don't oh, actually right. cross the Yarra very often. Ah. <laughs> I live Bayside. <laughs> oh, have you got a bit of a north and south side kind of thing, do you, as well, like we have up in here in Brisbane? Well, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Well, we're about, both about to find out shortly um, this weekend, so, yeah, it should be good. But, look, I'm really excited to have you uh, on the show this morning, um, Steph. Look, as a fellow nutritionist, um, you know, and, and to talk, obviously, about uh, food because we have this similar passion, um, and, of course, that means involves um, eating well, I'd love for you to share um, your journey with our listeners, Steph, like, what made you so interested in nutrition and, you know, eventually led you to become a nutritionist? Yeah, my story is quite a long one, but, you know, I'll give you the synopsis. So as a teenager, I basically thought I was really overweight and I started to find out how I was going to change that. This is obviously, well, no, no one knows how old I am. <laughs> this is probably like 20 years ago now, not to give away too much. And at the time, you know, the answers that we had were calorie counting and low-fat dieting. So mm. I went about counting every single calorie and cutting out just about every gram of fat I possibly could. You know, along the way, I, you know, had some ups and downs, but I eventually got to what was my goal weight and I had quite an epiphany you know I got to this this goal weight where I was finally thin but I realized that not much had changed you know I was actually really unhappy and using food and and my weight as an escape I then moved to Melbourne. So this is, um, you know, I'm from Townsville in North Queensland. So I actually spent spent a lot of time up your way. But I moved to Melbourne when I was 21. And um, shortly after, I met someone who had experience in the area of mental health. And I confided in him about my unhappiness. And he encouraged me to go gluten-free. Now, this is you know, well over 15 years ago, I didn't know what gluten was. I wasn't a nutritionist, um, but I was pretty desperate. I definitely didn't want to go down that the pharmaceutical route, which, you know, doctors were suggesting. So I took a deep dive and um, started the challenge of being gluten-free. Now, for me, it was night and day. You know, looking back, I can definitely see that a lot of my mental health challenges were to do with that low-fat diet that I followed for mm. years and years and years because we know our, you know, our brain is built on fats, our hormones are built on built on fats and proteins, and I was just depleting my body of the nutrients I needed to thrive. It was an absolute 180 in terms of how different I felt after. Um, sometime being gluten-free, but that was really just the catalyst for me. It was that firsthand experience for me to learn the healing power 
of real food and I just absolutely had to learn more and I wanted to share that with everybody else. Um, at the time I was working, you know, more in the fitness space. I was an exercise physiologist. I was a Pilates instructor. So I went back to study nutrition at a tertiary level. I did my postgraduate degree in nutrition because I wanted to have the qualifications to be able to share my personal journey and the benefits of, of real food with um, other people. So I certainly did that and I set up The Natural Nutritionist, which we call TNN just for short, in 2011. And I'm really passionate about real food. And, you know, my take on that is a lower carbohydrate, healthier fat model, which I know we'll get into today. Mm, interesting. Did you, I think we could all relate to that, uh, oh, I think it was in the 90s, we'll have to say, we don't want to share our ages, but um, yeah, well, during that 90s, it was, it was all about low fat, low fat, low fat, wasn't it? And it, it kind of just messes with your psyche, uh, you know, so much. And, and particularly, I think it would have been a, um, yeah, when you're in the, you're either a teenager or you're in your 20s, when that whole image thing is just so, so important. So you, you just think, well, I, low fat's going to, if I eat low fat, it means I'm not going to put on weight. But I mean, that's, that's, the, the whole difference, isn't it? That's sort of that one eighty degree turnaround. Is that fat doesn't make us fat? I know, and it's amazing now that you know. Again, my first hand experience, and I work day to day with people who have been indoctrinated into that low fat approach, mm. and they are so afraid of mm. certain real foods. And you know, I unintentionally become a bit of a bit myth buster over the years because I do break down myths like the low fat myth, um, the cholesterol and saturated fat heart health conversation, the snacking myth, the carbohydrate fallacy, you know, <laughs> our guidelines in the West are full of myths and a lot of things are upside down. So we're starting to see changes, you know, I think in the last three to four years, it's been huge, especially in Australia with I think paleo was the sort of probably the catalyst, but it started this amazing real food conversation and we're really starting to get this knowledge out to a much broader audience and people that really need to understand that, you know, your health begins with what you choose to put on your plate. Mm, yeah, beautifully said. So get and getting back to that, Steph, like because most people – uh, just try and follow the current guidelines or the current healthy eating guidelines wherever they are. I mean, I know I've got listeners all around the world here, but if we were to sort of um, look at the current Australian guide to healthy eating and how that is impacting on our health and I guess more specifically our gut, you know, is that a good guide that, you know, people are kind of running off? Well, absolutely not. You know, the dietary guidelines in Australia are largely to blame for the health crisis that we see in the West because if we break down that food pyramid or the recommendations that we see in Australia, I mean, that's come largely from America, so we can sort of take the chain backwards. But essentially, the the food pyramid is very carbohydrate dense. The guidelines, you know, are the six to eight. It used to be up to 11 serves of whole grains a day, and we're building our plate on these refined carbohydrates. So there's a huge inherent problem with that because, you know, number one, food quality is not considered because refined carbohydrates are exactly that. They're refined, so they're relatively nutrient poor. 
Um, but they spike our hormone, our fat storage hormone, insulin. So that's the start of this sort of blood sugar roller coaster that some people might be familiar with meal to meal, day to day. You know, it's that 3.30-itis that we that we experience at that time of the day where we need sugar or caffeine or a nap to survive the rest of the day. Like these are not normal. But the, the long-term impact of the food pyramid is why we're seeing the obesity epidemic, huge increases in avoidable diseases like type 2 diabetes. And we know that the problem from a long-term health point of view is inflammation. And our food pyramid has been contributing to inflammation. So that's why we're turning things upside down and we talk about JERF, that magic just eat real food, because it's anti-inflammatory in nature. And that's the goal for our health today, but definitely our longevity and avoiding these chronic diseases. Mm. Actually, that you just um, yeah led to my next question. I was going to ask you, um, you know, just stripping it right back you know we hear of this jerf or as you know you've just mentioned is just eat real food and along with the the low carbohydrate you know high fat um you know kind of eating what exactly is that for just you know for the the non-nutritionist listener out there that doesn't really know you know much about you know um you know this type of eating and, and that has for so long just been relying on information uh, that's been given to them that we've been seen on the tv through these guidelines uh yeah yeah it's a great question so as i mentioned jerf stands for just eat real food and the way i define that is food that comes out of the ground off a tree or from an animal now the latter is not compulsory you can definitely do it from a you know more vegetarian or vegan template but that's the way to think of it it's the it's food in its natural whole food state we say it has a low hi which is a low degree of human interference so the flip side of that is probably a lot of the food that we all grew up on, which is cereal and muesli bars and low-fat yogurt. And worse than that, when we look in the middle of the supermarket aisles with those refined carbohydrates, so they are not real food. So, you know, I think if you're ever in doubt and, you know, some of the things that we discussed today are probably going to be conflicting with your previous beliefs or what you've been told or, like you said, what you've seen on TV or if you've gone to university and studied dietetics, like a lot of what mm. we've been told is wrong. And similar to my earlier point about people being afraid of fat, you know, it's it's hard to undo what you know or what you've always been told or what you learned in your degree. But we've really got to look at the science and appreciate that when in doubt, you've just got to stick with food that comes, you know, out of the ground, off a tree or from an animal. Mm. Basically, things that don't have uh, or come with an ingredients list, isn't it, really? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, of course, there are exceptions to the rule. But, yeah, I mean, there's going to be one ingredient in an avocado, right? So <laughs> you can keep it that simple. Mm. Yeah. Well, so what are some of the signs and symptoms uh, that, that someone might notice that um, – you know that that perhaps their their eating is leading to that sort of inflammatory um, you know response that you were talking about before. Uh, you know, the, so that they might um, unhelp them understand that this sort of eating um, is will be good for them. 
Yeah, I think we can even probably take a step back from the inflammation because that's obviously a little bit more sort of medium to long term. But, you know, from a day-to-day point of view, I think the number one is blood sugar control. Mm. So if you're the person that needs to snack every two hours, that, you know, carries the muesli bar around, that has to go to the vending machine or the cafe at 3.30 or 4 o'clock, that needs dessert, that eats, eats as soon as they wake, so on and so forth, That's what we call poor blood sugar control, or it actually is the blood sugar roller coaster. So if you think about a roller coaster, it goes up and it goes down, and that's what your body's doing all day because you're eating nutrient-poor, refined carbohydrates, you're spiking your insulin, and you're a sugar burner by default. So that's a huge one. That's not normal. And a lot of people, like every time I do a seminar, I ask the question, hands up, who gets 3.30-itis? Everyone has a bit of a chuckle, but you know, nearly everyone puts up their hand. And it's, it's kind of the norm, especially in the corporate world, I find. People think it's normal, but it's not. It's an absolute byproduct of the previous meal choices so when I start to work with a client and we get them following a real food template one of the most immediate benefits is the satiety that you get from meal to meal so suddenly you're going four five or even more hours without eating and you feel like a different person at 3.30 or 4. And it might be a different time for, you know, for your audience depending on their shifts obviously. Mm. But, you know, <laughs> you can still apply that because, you know, for shift workers, some of their days are so long. If you're eating every couple of hours, like that's an, even a logistical nightmare to try and fuel yourself for. Whereas when you're a fat burner, and you've set your blood sugar control up and you've decreased your meal frequency by default, that's life-changing. It really is. Mm. I love that you've mentioned. Um, I'm glad you're speaking about the blood sugar because uh, it is, it's It's something, unfortunately, with sleep deprivation alone uh, messes with the uh, insulin and our cortisol levels. Like our insulin levels drop when we're sleep deprived. Our body just can't, you know, respond to insulin as much, which makes shift workers, unfortunately, uh, we are prone to developing insulin resistance, prediabetes, and eventually type 2 diabetes if we don't, um, you know, start to really, really watch what we eat and yeah, when you're mentioning the 3.30 PM-itis, often that can be 3.30 in the a.m. in the morning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, the mm. upside down of that. But, yeah, I mean, becoming a fat burner, which is definitely, I mean, JERF is the first step to turn that metabolism around and create that beautiful anti-inflammatory fat-burning environment, that will just completely change your world, um, you know, obviously when you're working and, and definitely outside of that as well. Mm, because that's the thing, isn't it? Like if we've we haven't eaten enough protein or fats, uh, you know, at, at at that beginning uh, of your shift or anything, and we've just primarily gone for like a high carb kind of diet, it's only a matter of like an hour later that we're going to get hungry, isn't it? Yeah, 90 minutes if you're lucky. And then unfortunately, like a lot of shift workers, like their big complaint is what's available at work. Like if you haven't taken something with you, we all know what's sitting in the tea room, right? So (laughs) it's more carbs, it's more sugar, and the vicious cycle just continues. So, yeah, like a lot of people need to sort of get their schedule 
a bit more organized to allow to prep. So there are those really beautiful vegetable, protein, healthy fat options. But I mean, to me, that's a fairly small investment of time for such a beautiful, positive flow on effect so that you can offset some of the, you know, the negative health consequences of shift work. You can control your insulin more. You can prevent those lifestyle diseases that should, they shouldn't even exist. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It just makes us more prone because of the mm-hmm. um, the sleep deprivation for sure. Yeah. Um, there's also something similar to the low-carb, high-fat, isn't it, called the ketogenic diet. Would you mind sharing with us exactly what that is? Because some of our listeners might have heard about it, uh, not sure exactly what it is. You know, is sure. it for them? Sure. So the keto diet or the ketogenic diet is a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, um, but more like traditionally, it's a pretty tight definition of, say, 25 grams of carbohydrates per day. The research on the therapeutic benefits of the keto diet for metabolic conditions, type 2 diabetes, obesity, that's crystal clear, like it is the treatment for those conditions. It's also been used for more than decades, I imagine, treating um, childhood epilepsy. But Mm. I don't personally prescribe that for, you know, 99% of people because 25 grams of carbs a day is very low. Like Mm. just for context, a banana Mm. would contain 30 grams, you know. So there's immediately... For foods that would can be completely off the list, and if it's a natural whole food, it can definitely fit into a LCHF template. So, you know, I think LCHF and keto can actually be the same because I think some people have gotten a little bit confused when we think about what keto actually means. So, when we burn fat, the byproduct are these ketone bodies. So you can burn fat on far more than 25 grams of carbs a day. You can still produce the ketone bodies, but you don't have to count your carbohydrates, cut out vegetables and so on. You're still getting all the benefits of ketones, which are amazing as a natural energy source. They're beautiful for the brain. So we often experience increased mental clarity and cognition. Um but that, that stable blood sugar that comes from that fat-burning capacity. So I, I much prefer to use the LCHF because we focus on the, the abundance of vegetables, the quality protein, the healthy fats. And it's not so much in Australia, but often in America you see these keto plates full of like bacon and cheese. And that's not what we're talking <laughs> about here when it comes to real food. So, you know, plants should actually be celebrated in every dish. So vegetables for breakfast is a big goal. Um, And I just think that LCHF can work for everyone as long as it's personalised. Yeah, well, I I was going to ask that question, yeah, because is it suitable for everyone? Because, yeah, depending on the situation of your current gut health, maybe somebody's got some big gut issues going on, but they're blissfully, you know, unaware of it. So is it really suitable for them to, you know, um, start something like LCHF? 
Absolutely. I mean, LCHF is just jerf. So everybody needs to be eating real food. Mm. It's just that not everyone needs to be super low on the on the carbohydrate spectrum. So it is a spectrum, right? I mentioned the keto is 25 grams of carbs a day. Then we go all the way up to 150 grams of carbs a day. Now, where you sit on that spectrum depends on a number of factors. The big one is your current existing level of carbohydrate intolerance. So if you're quite overweight, if you've got family history or any markers of pre-diabetes, if you've been eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, if you have that real poor blood sugar control that we've been speaking about, it's much like, more likely that you're going to be on the lower end of the spectrum, maybe 50 grams a day. But all of that stuff, all of those symptoms are reversible. And LCHF is how you do that. Type 2 diabetes is reversible. You know, it's a lifestyle disease caused by high carbohydrate and high sugar. Now, the flip side of that is that if you're very active, if you've got great carbohydrate tolerance, if you're at an ideal body composition and all of your blood parameters are optimal, then you can probably eat 150 grams of carbs per day. So it's a huge spectrum. We all sit somewhere along that spectrum. So it is important to think about those factors. You might get some blood tests and have a look at blood glucose levels, HbA1c, have a look at your inflammatory markers like triglycerides, and just have a look at your current health status. Um, that will change over time, obviously, and so too can your carbohydrate grams per day while you're undoing any of the damage that your previous ways that the food pyramid has contributed to. Mm. For someone, though, um, that's listening, would you be able to kind of, I guess, break it down a little bit more when you're talking about grams? Because I know mm -hmm. that that can, just that alone can sort of do someone's head in just knowing that they have to kind of measure out something mm. per grams like that. I mean, I know for myself that's never been of never wanted to go down that path of measuring things because I just think, oh, that's just going to slow me down even more. I just want to eat something. Is there a way that, uh, yeah, that we can sort yeah, of make it easy? there's a way to do it. Look, I, I hear you and I have heard this a, uh, like a thousand times <laughs> if I had a dollar kind of conversation. <laughs> Firstly, I think that you only need to log one or two standard days and the education that comes from that logging uh, is so powerful yeah, because yeah. a lot of people know that carbohydrates are found mm. in vegetables. Like that is is mind-blowing for some people. Yeah. Not a lot of people know that avocados contain carbohydrates. They're a fruit, right? They're mostly fat, but there's still some fiber and some carbohydrates. So Seeing that visual information in front of you is very powerful, but I also appreciate where you're coming from. So over the years, I've worked with so many people worldwide and I've developed a build your plate guideline. So I'll take you through that now. And there's resources on my site I can link you to for those that want like a handy fridge printout. But essentially, if you follow this build your plate guideline, you won't need to count. Okay. So we start with two cups of non-starchy vegetables. So non-starchy for the point of this conversation, everything green, and then it's really important that we get lots of color in there as well. So think carrot, eggplant, pumpkin, tomato. I know it's a fruit, but we put it in that vegetable <laughs> bucket for the point of today's conversation. So two cups with every meal. So if you're having three meals a day, do the math. That's six cups of vegetables a day. Then we try and look for about a palm-sized piece of protein with each meal. So that would be a palm of, say, fish or chicken, 
The equivalent would be three eggs or one cup of lentils or legumes if you prefer a veggio option. Then we're talking about the healthy fats. So it is one to two portions with each meal. Now I need to break that down. Firstly, a portion is two tablespoons. So let's say it's two tablespoons of oil like olive oil or coconut oil. Maybe it's two tablespoons of nuts and seeds. It might be two tablespoons of grass-fed butter. So one tablespoon, sorry, one serve is two tablespoons. You will need one to two of those serves per meal. How you work that out is usually how long a meal keeps you full for. So if you have two cups of vegetables, one protein, and one serve of healthy fats, and you're full for five hours, tick that box. You've nailed your meal composition. But if you're hungry in a couple of hours or maybe you've been more active or maybe you know that you've got to go longer than five hours because of where your shift breaks fall or whatever your day looks like, then you would do two cups of vegetables, one portion of protein, two portions of healthy fats. Does that make sense so far? Mm, yeah, much better. Yep, got to keep it simple and easy. Because <laughs> when we're sleep deprived, we can't calculate numbers very well. No, no, I'm just all of my clients become really proficient in this. So it's 211 or it's yep. 212. And we have these acronyms and it's a little, we spend a lot of time breaking this down because it's a really great way to build mm. your plate. Mm. You don't need a recipe book. You don't need to be in the kitchen for hours. Mm. Um, but I haven't spoken about one final group. I do need to touch on the complex carbohydrates. So you can get whole food carbohydrates from fruit and starchy vegetables like potato or sweet potato or beetroot. There's also things like quinoa and rice, which might suit you if your body tolerates grains. These are the foods that we eat post-training. So hopefully you are doing some exercise. Hopefully you have got a little bit of high-intensity exercise in the week. I want you to add maybe a half to one cup of the complex carbohydrates to the meal that you eat post-training. So it's about, you know, within that hour after we've done some high-intensity exercise, maybe you make your green smoothie and you throw in a banana. Or maybe you're having your fish and salad for dinner and you add some sweet potato mash or fries. We don't want to avoid these foods, these whole food carbohydrates, but we really only need them when they want to be utilized for that muscle glycogen replenishment, which is what happens when we train at a high intensity and we've got that post-training refueling requirement. Mm, yeah. And look, I know that um, there will be some listeners that are definitely uh, sporty, um, like yourself, <laughs> and that, are, that might be looking at, um, you know, training for things like, you know, triathlons or, or marathons. Actually, a girl I used to work with, I know she's um, training to go in, I think, the New York Marathon, um, that she does my head in. I, just, I get tired just thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so for those um, that – yeah, the, the, those listeners that are, um, you know, wanting to, uh, I guess, get that good balance to be able to uh, get the good energy, the, the right blood glucose level and so forth and combine it, even though um, and manage it the best that they can when they might be running on, on lack of sleep and everything. So what you're saying is to always make sure that it's after the event as opposed to the before the exercise. Yeah, ideally, I mean, some people feel like they do perform better if they add in some carbohydrates before training, but Mm. we have enough glycogen on board. You know, Mm. most of us have a couple of hours of glycogen stored in the muscle, and so we should be able to utilize that for the sort of durations that we're talking about here. Mm. 
Um, maybe if it's towards the end of the day and you haven't eaten since lunch, you might feel better completing a high-intensity session with like a little bit of banana with some nut butter on board. But I think most people, the more they become a fat burner, you know, the more they've refined their real food template, the less you need the food because you've got this metabolism to rely on. It's not out of the question though. Mm. Yeah, and I know that you're um, quite keen on the intermittent fasting side of things as well, Steph. Mm-hmm. Could you just give us a, a little bit of a quick insight of that for those listeners that may not have, you know, be aware of it? It's slow. I know it's slowly gathering more and more in momentum as more and more research comes out, which is fabulous. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a beautiful style of eating. So intermittent fasting or IF is really just manipulating your eating window. So there's lots of mm. different ways to do it, but you can simply start intermittent fasting by having a later breakfast. So if you're having breakfast at 7 o'clock and you change that to 8 o'clock, that's your version of intermittent fasting because you're delaying that overnight fast. You're giving your body an extra hour of burning fat before you break the cycle with that next meal. There's some pretty amazing research around Around what is known as the 16-8 protocol. So that's a 16-hour overnight fast. Um, some people, like me personally, I tend to eat a little bit later because I am working with clients. So let's say if I finish dinner by 8, then I'm having, I'm breaking my fast by midday the next day. Now, there are things that you can include in the fast. You can include water. You can include herbal tea. You can include, you know, black coffee. There's something called a bulletproof coffee or an MCT coffee, which can also be included. So it's not nothing, but it's the time between the last meal of the day before and the first meal of the current day. So some of the benefits are life-changing. So Think about fasting as your body's way of cleaning its house. Mm. So it promotes this process called autophagy, which is like Pac-Man who goes in and cleans up all the dead cells, regenerates the body and cleanses anything that would otherwise potentially become disease-like. So it's a very good cleaning mechanism, which is the sort of anti-aging mechanism over the long term. Um, But as I mentioned, it extends that fat burning capacity. So some people find it really amazing to achieve a more desirable body weight. Um, But from a gut health point of view, it's so helpful to create digestive ease. You know, we know that digestion is a very expensive process. There's lots of problems with eating frequently, but one of the big ones is the stress that it puts on the gut. Mm. So fasting relieves all of that. So for people that are um, experiencing poor gut health or IBS-like symptoms, that can be a really huge step in the right direction. And there's, you know, there's breast cancer reduction, there's chronic disease reduction. Like the research that's coming through more recently is mind-blowing. Like I think you've definitely got to give it a try I just always say that fasting is a muscle. So you've got to earn your stripes, so to speak. You know, don't dive into a 16-hour fast if you're currently snacking every two hours because it's going to end up pretty pear-shaped, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, absolutely. And and that's the thing is when we work 24-7, we often eat 24-7 as a result, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously sends us down a very slippery, slidey slope quite quickly. Um, And, yeah, when our body just becomes this uh, dependent on continually sort of eating all the time, yeah, like you said, uh, 
if you were to kind of go full in and jump 16 hours straight away, your body's got to go, well, what the hell? Like, you know, what is going on? Uh, yeah. So we always say blood sugar control first, yeah. which comes back to what you're eating. Yeah. So you set up your meal-to-meal windows and then you start to experiment. So do you have a 12-hour window overnight? So that would be like 7 to 7 or 8 to 8. So at least now the 12 hours first before you progress. Mm. Yeah, interesting um, to sort of take on a bit of a take on it in regards to like our night shifters listening mm. that might get home and like I always tell them it's really important to have something to eat before they, they go to sleep so that they don't get that experience, that blood sugar drop that can wake them up, um, which I think is really important. Um, so, yeah, to be able to, for them to be able to go through that whole day of sleeping and not eating though, it would be interesting to see how that would pan out. Yeah, I think there'd be a little bit of trial and error for mm. the shift workers to work out where to put that 16 hours. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like yeah. it's 16 hours. There's no time attached to that, right? So yeah. that would look quite different across the month depending on what your work shifts look like, mm. when you're having your rostered day off and, and things like that. So, you know, I think trial and error is really important, but there's obviously practitioners that can guide you if you need a little bit more help. Um, but, yeah, keep working with that sort of fasting is a muscle mantra because there's so many steps along the way that will help you land on a protocol that you feel really works for you, it's sustainable, and you get, you'll get all those longevity benefits out of it as well. Mm. Oh, I think it's, yeah, it's a great concept because I think, you know, when we, we sit down, it was actually one of the defining moments that I had uh, in my final year in clinic, actually, when I, you know, we, I think you could re- would have remembered this, Steph, that, you know, when we're in the clinic, we sort of get people to fill out that 24-hour food diary. Well, well, for me, I wasn't just asking, like, what they were eating, it was when, and that was the absolute real eye-opener for me um, in regards to when people were eating and how often they were eating. Uh, and I think people just weren't really aware of, of um, exactly the impact of that so I think um, yeah when when people sort of start to uh, make a notation of it and realize that oh my gosh I'm sort of eating every three or four hours even when those times that I might be getting up and sleeping I think um, that's just a, a great way and just to do it for a couple of days to kind of um, keep it as a track record so it doesn't become this painful thing um, to do but it just gives you that awareness I think uh, which I think is just key in, in really what we're trying to do uh, I think you would agree is is just letting people become aware of um, you know what their kind of eating behavior is doing or that that continual processed and refined foods even though it's easy it's quick um, to reach for but the long-term health implications that it's having on us um, is definitely uh, not great yeah, absolutely. And it's always going to take a little bit more planning when you've got that shift work. But mm. I think that's another reason why we don't actually talk about certain meal times. Like a lot of people actually are probably already intermittent fasting because they um, they never kind of got into the habit of breakfast. And we were told that was so bad for so long. Yeah. Like a lot of people still come into my clinic room and I'm like, um, you know, I don't eat breakfast. I'm like, well, actually, that's probably a good thing. Like it'd be worse if you were having an up and go, right, because you were so time poor. <laughs> and so a lot lot of the things are absolutely upside down so you know breakfast can be your leftovers from the night before at midday because breakfast isn't a time it means breaking your fast so it's the first time that you eat 
Mm, yeah, yeah, well, very well said, very well said. Well, look, this has been uh, really interesting, Steph, um, you know, great advice. Um, thank you so much for joining me uh, this afternoon. So how can people learn more about what you do, um, your clinical practice, because I know that you're down in Melbourne, some of the workshops that you run, how can people find you? Thank you so much. Yes, I'm online at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. So that is my online hub. Um, I definitely also hang out on Instagram. The handle is the natural nutritionist. So you can definitely find out more about me and my clinic there. I also have a upcoming book called Low Carb Healthy Fat Nutrition, which is all about, you know, the real food conversation that you and I have been having today. We break down a lot of food myths and misconceptions. There's meal plans and over 150 real food-based recipes. Pre-sale is on now and it's released in November of this year. So you guys can check that out online and I'd love you to get in touch if you have any questions for me. Oh, that's exciting. Congratulations. Another book, book number two. It's so exciting. (laughs) It's number two. It feels like number one because it's my first published book so that's been like the top of my bucket list item for years now yeah um so it's a bit surreal but it's very exciting I just can't wait to have it in my hands I haven't got a a printed copy yet so I'm kind of counting down the days for that now (laughs) yeah Yeah, no well done well done I'm sure that's been many many years in the making um for you to yeah get to that point so yeah Yeah. that's thank you so much (laughs) awesome well look it's been um lovely speaking with you Steph and look I'm really looking forward to catching up um, this weekend um, down at the summit um, as I'm sure that you can sort of agree that, you know, doing this social media stuff is great but it's always much more fun when we kind of meet um, in person in the flesh and and meet our clients and and listeners and and so forth. (laughs) Isn't it? It's going to be an awesome weekend and I can't wait to see you there. Yeah. Thanks again. That's all right. All right, so that's it for another edition of the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. If you enjoyed the show, uh, please feel free to share it with other shift workers who you think may benefit as this will help me to spread the Healthy Shift Worker message to shift workers and organisations all around the world. It also helps um, if you leave us a rating, preferably five-star, if you really liked the episode, as this will help my podcast gain an even bigger reach, which will enable me to help more people. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Until next time, may you continue to be as healthy as you possibly can be despite working 24-7. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.